Well, good morning, church. There was a concerned husband who goes to see the family doctor, and he says, I think my wife is going deaf. She never hears me the first time I say something. In fact, I often have to repeat things over and over again. Well, the doctor replies, in order to evaluate the severity of her deafness, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home tonight and stand about 15 feet from her and say something. If she doesn't reply, move about five feet closer and say it again. And keep doing so, so we can get some idea as to how bad it really is. Well, sure enough, the husband goes home. He does exactly as instructed. He stands behind his wife, who's back to, uh, to him, about 15 feet from her. as She's chopping some vegetables. Honey, what's for dinner, he asks. He gets no response, so... He then moves five feet closer and asks again, Honey, what's for dinner? Still no reply. And he's thinking, wow, this is pretty serious. And so he moves five feet behind her, and for the third time, he says, What's for dinner? Still no reply. So he gets kind of fed up, and he moves right behind her, about an inch away from her, and asks one final time, Honey, what's for dinner? She turns around and replies, well, for the fourth time, beef stew. (laughs) Who had the problem hearing? Have you ever jumped to a conclusion that simply was incorrect? I think we all have been guilty of this at one time or another. We make some kind of judgment or we project on someone else our own faults. Often we jump to conclusion without really hearing what is being said or hearing the whole story. Well, Proverbs 18, 13 tells it straight. It says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, that is his folly and shame. Jumping to conclusions, is that really a big deal? Well, how much hurt has been caused in the Christian community or among friends or family because someone formed an opinion or jumped to a conclusion that just wasn't true. I mean, try to unring that bell. As one person quipped, the only exercise some people get is jumping to conclusions. Well, the letter to the Corinthians church recorded for us in 1 Corinthians, I invite you to turn there, was written by the Apostle Paul, who was subjected to wrongful conclusions about him and his ministry. And God saw fit to include this letter as part of his uh, inerrant word and for our benefits. And so we are in week four of our sermon series on church awakening. And I chose Church Awakening and the church in Corinth as an example because the erosion that is slow and subtle that was happening in the church in Paul's day can happen in our day as well. Church, this is no time to fall asleep at the wheel. The church must stay awake to the unique challenges we face today. We must wake up to what any erosion can do. We must wake up to any drifting that has taken place in our lives, individually, in our marriages, and as a church family. We must be awakened 
to what God's doing, what he wants to do in building his church. All right, look with me at the passage that was read earlier by Cindy in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to follow along. Always helpful to do that. And I want to give you what I believe to be the issue uh, that's, uh, that we all must face. This is the issue. Our evaluations are premature, based on limited knowledge, and hold no true weight in the end. Let me say that again. Our evaluations are premature, based on limited knowledge, and hold no true weight in the end. All right, my first heading this morning is our evaluations in perspective. Our evaluations in perspective. I hope you're there. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, so then, and those words uh, tell us there's a continuation of thought uh, from what he's just been talking about, and we're gonna, we'll come back to this in a minute. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as though entrusted with the secret things of God or the mysteries uh, revealed to us, whatever your translation might have there. But, but let's pick up this so then. So then. Well, what has Paul just been talking about? Divisions in the church. And what was the main source of their divisions? Well, the people were arguing about who was the most important, most honored leader. And they were basing their evaluations on wrong criteria. They were using worldly and cultural measurements. They were wrongly viewing themselves as the authority on what makes a good minister, a good leader, a good teacher. And it was destroying the church. That's why Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let your eyes travel over there for a minute. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now get this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Wow. I don't think you want to mess with this church. Now, of course, here he's not referring to the building, but the people of God in the building. And yet our judgments and our evaluations and uh, our um, jumping to conclusions often have done nothing more than bring harm to the church. And that's why Paul has already spent three chapters calling them to snap out of it. And Paul was in the crosshairs of their worldly evaluations, the people regarded Paul as one who did not measure up. And so Paul puts it in perspective. He sets the church trait as to how he should be evaluated. So then, he says, this is how you are to view and measure your leaders. First of all, as servants of Christ. As servants of Christ. Now, Paul here refers to himself as a servant as well as uh, Cephas and Apollos and the others. And what's interesting about Paul's word choice here is missed in our English translation. There are, other, there are three other words for servant that Paul could have used here. There was uh, the word for a domestic household servant, um, or uh, the Greek word doulos, which means somebody who was in chains, a, a bond slave. Paul uses that word other places. Paul didn't choose either of those two words here. 
Nor did he choose the word which spoke of what we might think of as an employee, someone who obeys the commands of someone over him, as he does in chapter 3, verse 5. He uses that word servant there in that sense. But he doesn't choose any of those three. The word he chooses for servant here literally is under rower. Under rower, R-O-W-E-R. And it refers to the person who rowed on the lowest level of the galley. Paul calls them to regard him as one who rowed on a slave ship on the bottom tier. Remember seeing this this, uh, cartoon that uh, depicted a group of uh, shackled prisoners standing on a dock, and they were waiting for a Roman galley that was pulling into the port. Well, that's a great ship, one mused. I wonder what makes it go. Now, little did they know, they were the ones that make it go. It would be them as they rode at the bottom of the ship that would move the ship. Paul says, that's how you should view me and Apollos and Cephas, galley slaves, rowers of the ship of the lowest rank. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he's lending some perspective on the church treating their leaders as celebrities. We still do that today. You don't exalt a rower of the ship. So stop elevating them. They're doing what they're doing because they're servants of Christ and he is willing to use them in in that way. And so they should stop arguing about which leader is better, which speaker's a 10 and which one's a 5, which one's a 1. Stop doing that. But we do this. We do this, don't we? We are evaluators. There's no getting around it. We see ourselves as professional critics, or at least semi-pro, as judgments. We figure we have all the information and knowledge that we need on some situation to make accurate, make these accurate evaluations and then express those informed opinions to everyone else. We have this propensity, and I say we, to put everyone under this microscope and scrutinize what they do. And we become the self-appointed authority. Don't do it. Stop ranking others. Often, it is based on worldly measurements. That's his point. Servants of Christ. What a striking word picture here. The great apostle who could have asserted his authority, and at times he did, he does even in this letter. He considered himself, he wanted them to regard them, himself and others, as mere galley slaves and the hold in the bottom of the ship with the rest of God's people pulling on an oar with everyone else. And if we take this picture a little bit further, we would say the Lord Jesus is our true captain. And the direction in which the church or any other ministry goes, the speed with which it develops, and the size to which it grows is God's prerogative. Our task, no matter what our position, our title, or our work, is to keep our eyes on what? The captain. On Jesus. And keep on rowing. Keep on rowing. We're Christ's servants, Paul says. Secondly, he says we're stewards. We're stewards. And I get that from the next words there in that same verse. The end of, I think it's uh, verse 2. 
entrusted with the secret things of God, verse 1, and he says more about it as he goes on. Entrusted with the secret things of God. Now that word entrusted refers to one who's been appointed by the owner who's responsible for the affairs of the, of the estate. A steward is put in charge of a household or estate. But a steward is not the owner, but he acts on behalf of the owner. And Jesus spoke of this often in his parables. For example, take the parable of the talents. You can check it out for yourself. Community groups will look at this, but Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Matthew 25, 14 through 30, we have the parable of the, of the, of the talents, and it relates, I want to relate it to these verses here. And you might recall that in that parable of the talents, that to one, uh, the master gave five talents, to another, he gave two talents, and to another, he gave one talent. Now, the point of that parable is not the amount. It's not the amount. It's not about, uh, stewardship's not about comparison. Oh, you got five, I only got two. Or, I, I have five, and you only have one. No, no, that wasn't the point of the parable of the talents at all. No, the point of the parable of the talents, and we see it played out here, it's a matter of what we do with what we have been given, the opportunities we have been given for the sake of the kingdom. That's what we're going to be evaluated on. We're called to be stewards, managers over everything God has given us. And, and that means our time. That means our abilities. That means our relationships. That means our jobs. That means our spiritual gifts. And, and yes, it means our wallets. And one of the reasons for this church's immaturity in Corinth was this issue of stewardship. They were acting like owners. They needed to wake up and realize that they were not the owners. God is the owner. You're living in his house. Now, stewardship's an age-old problem. I could, uh, I don't have the time to look at it all through Scripture, but it goes as far back as Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve uh, did not own the garden, right? They were what? Responsible to take care of the garden. But the temptation for them was to grab ownership. You can be like God's. Grab ownership. They were not content to be stewards. Stewardship. Stewardship. It could, it could rightly be argued that this is our ultimate calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Am I a good steward? Well, what's the one requirement? How should we be evaluated? Now we come to verse 2. Follow along here, verse 2. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove talented. It doesn't say that. Must prove success. Doesn't say that. Must prove better than, than others in what they do. No, none of that. Must prove what? Faithful. Faithful. It isn't, are we popular? It isn't, did everyone like us? On that day, the Lord won't say, well done, good and famous servant. <laughs> but well done, good and faithful servant. Now, maybe some of you have heard of John Spurgeon. I have not until this past week when I looked into this. But John Spurgeon. I'd say many of you probably haven't heard of John Spurgeon. But many of you have heard of the preacher Charles Spurgeon. But not John Spurgeon. Well, John Spurgeon was Charles Spurgeon's father. 
And I thought, if his son did not achieve such fame as a preacher, then John Spurgeon would serve the Lord faithfully, but nothing of notice could be connected to his name. Now there's a connection to his name, as I just told you. He's the father of Charles Spurgeon. You go, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. But it made me think, how many have walked with God, raised their children to serve him without any notice in the sight of the world? That's called ordinary faithfulness, folks. So I asked myself the question, am I willing to serve God faithfully and raise my children to serve him even if you never achieve any recognition? Am I willing to to serve God faithfully and the ordinary stuff of life even if God chooses never to make me well-known as Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or some Christian athlete or fill in the blank? That's all his business. Our business is what? Faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. Now, our mission as a church, heard me say it many times, is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We make disciples. Here's a mark of a disciple. It's on the screen. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus and the everyday stuff of life while teaching others to do the same. Now, if you like that definition, I probably got it from someone else. If you didn't, you can blame me for it, but it's the one I'm going with. I like it. I like it. A mark of a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in what? The everyday stuff of life. This is the big stuff. Everyday stuff of life. The ordinary. While teaching others to do the same. Make disciples who make disciples. And I would say the most important thing in the church today is faithfulness. That's how we're to be evaluated. I mean, it puts all evaluations in perspective. All right, let's look at the problem with evaluations. Uh, My second heading this morning, problem with our evaluations. Paul's going to reveal the real problem with judging others, with, with jumping to these conclusions These snap judgments that we make, he talks about it in verse 3. Follow along. I care very little, he says, if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Now, in verses 3 through 4, I see three courts here. Three courts. Three courts. The first court is the human court of others' opinions. That's the first court we see here, the human court of others' opinions. And what does Paul say about this human court of others' opinions? I care very little if I'm judged by you. In other words, it matters very little to me what you or anyone else thinks of me. All right, now, Paul here is not antisocial. He isn't saying He doesn't value the opinions of others. He's not being callous here. Matter of fact, he was sensitive to the opinions of others. Just read through 1 Corinthians and you'll see how he was hurt by some of them and how they treated him, how they saw him, that they wouldn't reciprocate his love. He was sensitive to the opinions of others. That's not what we're talking about. But he was not swayed by the opinions of others. That's the difference. He did not listen to the backseat driver or the Monday morning quarterbacking. But you know, whether we like it or not, we all stand at the judgment seat of others, don't we? We can't avoid this. 
and yet it's practiced way too much today in the Christian community. Abraham Lincoln said, public opinion in this country is everything. How many years ago did he say that one? Sounds like something last week. Everyone has an opinion on everything. I raise my hand. And that's why we have restaurant critics, and we have movie critics, and we have political critics, and we have sports critics, and we have church critics. Are you a critic? You say, yeah, yeah, but, but mine is constructive criticism. <laughs> you, you sure about that? Human court of opinions. Listening to it can be paralyzing. I know I've shared with you before the story of a dad and his son and their donkey who were traveling from one village to another. And the boy walked while the man rode the donkey. And as they entered the village, the farmer overheard a bystander say, that's a shame. Look how that man is making that poor boy walk. Not wanting to be the object of criticism, the, the dad and the son changed places. And as they entered the next village, the boy was on the donkey, riding the donkey while the man walked. He then heard a woman comment, look how that boy on the donkey is making that poor man walk. Okay, so this father and son both climbed onto the donkey. And as they entered the third village, someone said, look how that man and boy are making that poor donkey suffer. Well, they both got off and walked. When they passed through the fourth village, the people remarked, look at that foolish man and boy. They're walking when they could be riding the donkey. <laughs> when they entered the next village, the boy was walking, the man was carrying the donkey. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? No matter what you do, someone will find fault. There's danger to defer to the opinion of others. Now, as a quick aside, though an important aside, this is not at odds with holding leaders and others accountable. Hear me on this. Paul is not saying he's not answerable to anyone. I've heard people say, I'm just answerable to God. You have not. No, not all, all cases. He nor anyone else is above examination and criticism. For example, where there's immoral behavior, or unlawful conduct, where there's abuses of authority, where there's mishandling of what God has given, or there's false teaching, or where there's living in unrepentant sin, or unwise living, that individual is not above reproach. There's a proper judging and a proper way biblically to go about confronting that. This here is not speaking to those instances, okay? The people in Corinth were going wrong because they were basing their evaluations on wrong things. And often, our judgment, our jump to judgment, can be premature and without proper information. Human court of opinions is flawed. It's flawed. All right, there's a court that's a little higher than the opinions of others. You come to our second court, one's conscience one's conscience. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but does not make me innocent. Now, this isn't promoting Jiminy Cricket theology here. Let your conscience be your guide. It's not an accurate guide. Now, I've had people say, well, I know that happened, and I'm young, but my conscience is clear. 
That isn't always the end of the matter. Just because we don't find fault in ourselves doesn't justify us. And Paul refused to pass final judgment on himself. He says, I don't even value my opinion of myself. He isn't cleared just because he couldn't find something against himself. You see, the conscience should always be, be, be refined and, and submitted to the, to, to the Lord's scrutiny. We don't stand or fall based on our own evaluation. For God may reverse that court's decision. We come to the third court, the higher court, what Christ says about it. End of verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. We're all going to stand before a higher court. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And again, as I noted last week for believers, this is not for our sins. No, our stewardship will be under inspection. Our personal resources and how we use those personal resources for the kingdom and wisely, that's going to be judged. It will be our faithfulness that will be evaluated by the one who knows the whole story. So we come to my third heading this morning. True evaluation is coming. True evaluation is coming. Look at verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. Now, you see what this is saying? Our evaluations are premature. They're based on limited knowledge, and they hold no true weight in the end. So stop, stop our snap judgments. Now, you might have recalled, might recall some super Super Bowl ads that talked about snap judgments, and some of them aren't worth mentioning here, but there's one I'm going to mention. And that is where this man is in the kitchen and he's preparing a romantic dinner for his wife. And he's chopping vegetables with a large knife while tomato sauce is simmering on the stove. And then this white cat comes along, knocks the pan of sauce onto the floor, and then the cat falls into the mess covered with this sauce. So this man picks up this, his, his tomato splattered a cat as his wife opens the door. She sees him now. She sees him holding a cat dripping red, red sauce, in one hand with a large knife in the other. The scene appears to be unmistakably horrific. And the whole point of that ad, I don't really remember what they're advertising, but I remember the ad. The whole point of the ad is that things aren't always as they first appear. We do this all the time. Oh, I, I, I got enough information there. I'm going to make a snap judgment. And then we share that je- snap judgment with everybody else. No, we can jump to those conclusions based on first appearance, but there might be a lot more to it than we can see. Slow down. Just slow down. Because there will be a day when God turns on all the lights in the house. God will see into every room of our hearts. Look at the rest of verse 5. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts, of our hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, evaluation is coming by the one who knows us fully. We may be misunderstood by some now, accusing us of doing uh, things for the wrong reasons. Some might misunderstand that we're, and think we're doing it for the praise of others. But listen, God will turn all the lights on. 
People do not determine the prizes and rewards the master of ceremonies does. People may wrongly evaluate us, but God won't. And I have a feeling that there will be many surprises on that day. Now, while there's something sobering about this evaluation to come by God himself, it really also should serve as an encouragement. Because the way the end of verse 5 is worded suggests this is to be a wonderful thought. Consider this as motivation. Each will receive his praise from God. Let that sink in. Praise will come from God to us. And we focus our days on giving praise to God, and rightly so. But can you imagine what it would be like one day to hear God give his praise to us? The God who spoke all things into existence? The God who can make the mountains quake with one word? The God whose voice is powerful and majestic will speak his praise to you? And when it says here, each will receive his praise from God, I believe that's suggesting he'll personalize it for you. It won't be some like Hallmark card that God just signs. It won't be some attaboy, that's my girl kind of praise. It might be just some well-crafted thought or note of encouragement. It will be something that will overwhelm us with joy like no words we have ever heard from anyone. It comes down to this, church. It comes down to this. We can't always trust others' judgment. We can't always trust our own assessment. But we can fully trust God's evaluation. We can't always trust others' judgments. We can't always trust our own assessment. But we can trust God's evaluation. And so the question is, will you, will I trust our faithfulness to him? Is his praise enough? Hymn writer puts it in Be Thou My Vision, one of the verses. He says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. I tell you, every time I sing that, I go, am I lying right now? Because if we're honest... We do pay attention to the praise of others. And sometimes we can swallow it. Stories told of a young preacher who preached this message that God richly blessed and it hit the congregation with great impact. And the young man, the young preacher, received a lot of affirmation and praise afterwards as he should have. One person even handed him a note that praised him up and down for his preaching. So when he got home uh, over lunch, he took that note out that he's already kind of took in quite a bit, and, and he read the note aloud to, to his wife, and, and as he's drinking in the success, he said to his wife contemplatingly, I wonder how many great preachers there are in the world? And his wife replied, well, one less than you think. <laughs> ouch, ouch. You know, I mean, it happens. It happens. Sometimes we need to hear that, not on Sunday afternoon. 
The trouble with most of us, someone said, is that we'd rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Bring it on. Now listen, praise of others isn't the problem, okay? And we should be generous in our encouragement of praise to others. Yes, spread it around. It's normal to want to hear the praise of others. To be accepted resides in all of us. It isn't wrong to desire others' appreciation and for them to recognize our accomplishments. To please others is a very common tendency. Pleasing others is not all wrong. Just keep it in check. Just keep it in check. As it's been said, praise is like perfume. Sniff it, but don't swallow it. And if you start to swallow it, you're in trouble. We should allow ourselves to be driven by this instinct. It could lead to all kinds of stuff. If we love the praise too much, we'll be at the mercy of others' opinions. For it's been said, don't believe your own press, good or bad. Winston Churchill was asked about the large audiences at his speeches, and someone said to him, wow, you must be so pleased and flattered by all these people showing up for your speech. And he answered, he said, it's quite flattering, but whenever I feel this way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech I were being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. Puts it in perspective. People-pleasing is subject to the law of diminishing returns. Living for the human court of people's opinions is not sustainable, for people are fickle and will be all over the place if that's what we're resting on. Dying Horace Greeley exclaimed, he said, fame is a vapor, popularity an accident, riches take wings. Those who cheer today will curse tomorrow. Only one thing endures, character. Character. Well done, good and faithful servant, are character words. When God turns on all the lights, what will he see? That you live for the praise of others or you live for his praise? I mean, what, what drives you? Judy Garland, best known for playing Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, led such a tragic life marked by, uh, by, with drugs and five failed marriages, and she had this compulsive desire to please other people. The story's told that it started way back when she was two and a half And there she was at two and a half at her first performance in the Grand Theater in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And she was singing Jingle Bells at a Christmas program. And she became so enamored with the lights and the cheering of the audience and people saying, we love you, Judy. She wouldn't leave the stage when her song was done. Matter of fact, her dad was forced to remove her after she repeated the song Jingle Bells seven times. (laughs) That unquenchable need for acclaim and affection from the audience followed her throughout her life. I mean, what happened when the cheering stopped? She found the deep depression. What happens when the cheering stops? What happens when pleasing others becomes most important? I mean, when, when God turns on all the lights... 
See, the big question is, did we live to please the Lord? Is pleasing Him most important? Otherwise, we'll be like that two-year-old Judy Garland in the Grand Theater in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. So addicted to the praise of the crowd that we just keep singing jingle bells over and over again until someone finally has to yank us off the stage. Can you trust that waiting for God's commendation, His praise of your life is far greater than all the praise of others combined in this life? Can you trust God to reward you accordingly To honor your faithfulness, even ordinary faithfulness in this life. Because God will reward faithfulness. You may not know when it will come. But can you trust Him that it will? If not in this life, it will be the next. Let's pray. Father God, help us in making the personal application to our lives. It's the Spirit of God who does that. And we pray for that. We pray that there's some of encouragement here in these words we we looked at this morning, where there needs to be rebuke and exhortation that we we would accept that and receive that from you. Whatever it is you want us to see from this, because your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do that with your word this morning in our lives, as we trust you with our lives, as we trust you with our future, as we trust you with our faithfulness to you throughout this life, that you will reward accordingly. May our trust be there, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.